This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 19th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Megan Cantwell. On this week's show, I talk with Phil Jones about his work on finding non-cancer-causing mutations in the human body. How many do we have and what are they doing? And I talk with Praveen Vimula about developing a gel to protect farmers from harmful pesticides. In our lifetimes, we're constantly replacing cells all over the body, in our organs, skin, blood, things like that. Each time these cells arise, the genome is copied from their parents and mistakes can be made. But whether these changes, these changes in the genomes are harmful or benign, these cells are just not quite like their parents. And we don't really understand how common these changes are, these mutations are, or their impact on the body as a whole. Phil Jones and colleagues looked for these slight genetic variations in the cells lining the esophagus. And we'll talk about why the esophagus in a minute. And they found a hidden world of mutation in people that don't have disease in their esophagus. He's here to tell us about these findings in more detail and what they might mean for our understanding of cancer and aging. Hi, Phil. Hello. Hi. (laughs) That was a bit of a long intro, but I think everybody's just dying to know, why did you look at the esophagus when you wanted to find out how common mutations were in cells? Well, we'd done a study a few years ago where we looked at normal human skin and we found quite a lot of mutations. The thing with skin is we all go out in the sun and the sun is very good at changing the letters and DNA code. And it's not really a surprise if you find lots of mutations in the skin. But now we wanted to go and turn our attention, if you like, to a place where the sun doesn't shine, where (laughs) we wouldn't expect to see perhaps so many mutations. And I think we expected not to find very much, if I'm honest, which is why the results that we had in completely normal, healthy people's esophagus yeah. were a real, a real shock. And these are the same type of cells that you see on the outside of the body? They're first cousins, if you like, yeah. the ones on the outside. So there, there are some differences, but essentially they work the same way. How many people did you look at and how much of their esophagus did you look at? We were very privileged to get the esophagus from people who had died suddenly and unexpectedly, whose organs were being taken for transplanting to other people. We're very grateful to the relatives of these people, and they signed a consent and let Mm -hmm. us take the middle third of the esophagus, this tube that connects your mouth and your stomach, so that's about 
five to 10 centimeters in length. We cut the lining into little squares, and then we applied a sequencing method to read the letter changes in those squares. And that essentially was the project. We had nine people, the youngest was in their 20s, the oldest was 75, and all of them have no history of disease of the esophagus. The esophagus, we took a great deal of pains to show it was normal as far as we could say. Yeah. So what we were doing is trying to get a snapshot of normal people's esophagus. And when you looked at the cells of the esophagus, you did see an unexpectedly large number of mutations in the genomes of those cells. What we were really looking and detecting is not mutations in individual cells, mm -hmm. but groups of cells that had picked up a letter change and then passed it on to their daughters and their daughters and their daughters and so on to generate a large clump of cells carrying the same single letter change in the DNA. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that we were seeing hundreds of those. Each cell seems to carry a couple of thousand mutations over its genome. But what matters are the ones that trigger the cell to alter its behavior to make a really big clump of cells. Right. And that's this idea of competitiveness so that these cells are. So, yeah, but there's so many. These clones get these. And a clone is just a bunch of cells, a family, if you like, yeah. a family tree having the same letter change. They get so big that they start to grow and they're kind of beating up the normal cells, but eventually they hit each other. So it's a bit, my postdoc calls it game of clones rather than <laughs> game of thrones because you've got different families competing for the same size bit of territory. And that is the basis of something that's very parallel, we think, to what happens in species evolution. We get competition and survival of the fittest. And the fittest in this case are the the altered genes that make the cells best able to compete. And they were taking over big swaths of the tissue that you examined. Yeah. So basically, by the time you're 40, well over half of your esophagus by area is mutant. Huh. This is a bit of a shock. Yeah. And in fact, we looked at 74 of the usual suspect genes, and we chose genes that are linked to cancer because they're ones that have to have hung out in normal tissues for a long time to turn into a cancer. I don't think our findings are necessarily directly relevant to cancer, but that's what we chose. But only 12 of those turned out to be the kind of super competitors that would win out in this clone wars that we were seeing in, in the normal tissue. Huh. So there's some link to cancer here. One of the ideas about how cancer grows or progresses is it's, it's better at cloning itself and making more of itself than the surrounding tissues. And that you know, it grows out of control, right? Yeah, but big health warning to that idea is that this is completely normal tissues. Right. If you compare the number of mutant cells in normal tissues with the number of cancers, cancer's like a one in a billion, one in a trillion event. So what we're looking at, you could almost call normal getting older physiology, like yeah. looking more wrinkly when you look in the mirror. Well, if you could see the mutations in your esophagus, you can basically read off your age from the pattern that you see. And do you see that increase you know, as your samples were from older people you saw? Absolutely. There's about five-fold increase in the number of these big clumps of cells carrying the same mutation as you go from in your 20s to in your 70s. And then you do see some flavors, some, some particular genes kind of winning out. Yeah. The strongest winner, which was really interesting to us, was a gene called Notch, Notch 1, which has been found in cancers. But in fact, we found it was five to 10 times more common in normal huh. than it was in cancer. And that tentatively raises hints at, don't want to overclaim it, that mutating this gene might be protecting you against developing cancer. 
Does research like this help us pick out who are the bad guys? At one level, it's very helpful to compare it with the cancers. So there's long been a very good idea that the mutations that matter in cancer are the ones that keep showing up. Mm -hmm. But we've done that without knowing what was in the normal tissue. So like people have said, well, notch one must cause cancer because it does show up at a few percent of cancers. But actually, it's much more common than the normal. The interpretation of that could change entirely. You know, when we talked about the skin and UV light and how likely that is to change the DNA, did you see any markers of environmental effects on these mutations? So, so we, we very strikingly did not see markers of environmental effects. And this was a real surprise. Yeah. I wouldn't want to overclaim it. Hey, it's nine people. Does that represent the whole world's population? No. We had four smokers and five non-smokers. Yeah. But there was no difference in the we call them mutational signatures. So it's a bit like an artist, you know, signs their work on the DNA. And you can read off what causes some of the letter changes from the pattern and get a kind of signature out of it for what might be causing those letter changes. And essentially what we saw are ones which are just essentially linked to getting older. What we're saying is that these things will just happen to you, whether or not you'll kind of have a clean lifestyle or a bad lifestyle. Now, I absolutely would stress This is not giving you an excuse to say, oh, well, it's just bad luck. Because what we think is that things that promote cancer, alcohol, for example, cigarettes, whatever, they're going to work between these kind of mutated cells in the normal and the the cancer. Now know the steps. There's several steps you have to cross, hurdles you have to cross to get to be a cancer from these mutant clones in normal. We've connected this with cancer and environmental concerns. But in your paper, you also talk about the relationship between the changes that you see in the esophagus and aging, particularly this idea of these expansions of these little families. You know, how how does that relate to aging? How do you see that fitting together? If these mutations didn't change the way cells behaved in aging, they'd kind of appear and then they disappear spontaneously and they would never really fill up a tissue. The fact that they have this kind of Darwinian advantage they're selected for means that you could have just a few of them and over many, many cell divisions, they'll relentlessly colonize the tissue, which is what we see in the esophagus. Mm -hmm. Now, if that was true, I don't know if it is, but if it was true much more broadly across the body, it would say we are relentlessly accumulating as we get older clones which have a competitive advantage. Now, it might be that they, like the esophagus, leave your tissue looking completely normal normally, but imagine if you stress the tissue, maybe those mutant cells would do less well. And maybe the reason, certainly when I look in the mirror, I get depressed because I'm not as young looking as I was five years ago, is because not only my skin, but also elsewhere, my body's not working quite so well because it's more and more mutant. Right. And those competitive advantages of these cells that are taking over, it's not we're making your body healthier and stronger. It's we're really good at growing. That's what we do. And, well, they're good at taking over the normal tissue. Right. They're not misbehaving that badly. Right. It's not giving you cancer. And we genuinely don't know how many of these there are across the whole genome, yeah. across the tissues. And that's a really big objective for our institute and a lot of other people around the world. So is that the next step to kind of build up a library of mutation, what's likely in different tissues? how they change with age. We're sort of very focused on the skin and the esophagus. We're basically getting a lot more old people now. Once you're over 65, your risk of this sort of cancer goes up a lot. And in fact, most common cancers are like that. What would be really bad for your cancer risk is not if you have just one letter change, but suppose you had four or five different changes in critical genes. 
And the best place to find evidence of those clones with multiple letter changes is going to be in the oldest people. And we're modifying the technology now to try and drill down and find, as we hinted at, the cells which are most at risk of changing. Mm. The other thing we're doing is we're exploring transgenic mouse models where we can introduce these mutations. We can also mutate the mouse randomly a bit, recreate the clone wars. Mm -hmm and just see whether we can test ideas to alter the competition process. Because we know in evolution, like if the environment changes, then one species does really well and another species does really badly. Suppose you could take the bad mutations and make it harder for them to win in the, in the war. I think it's really interesting, this idea that our cells are going about their business, but their business is not always in our best interest. And it's not that it's cancer. It's just that they have different priorities. Well, in a way, they're blind. So it's just like the blind watchmaker idea. It's like the mutant cell neither knows nor cares about how the tissue works when it's colonized half of it. Right. It certainly doesn't care about you as an individual. Right. And all it needs is to have an advantage. And it's likely for these normal tissue mutations, they're not causing a huge problem because the kind of tissue looks normal. You literally can't tell down a microscope yeah. where one of these clones ends and another begins. It's more that when you add them up or when you, you get another aging-related process that things might start to go wrong. But this is, this is going to be a very exciting period as we start to kind of unravel what's hidden in there. So, well, Thank you so much, Phil. Thanks a lot. Phil Jones is a professor of cancer development at the University of Cambridge. You can find a link to this research at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for Megan's interview with Praveen Vamula on developing a protective gel for agricultural workers at risk of pesticide exposure. This episode is brought to you in part by the NSA. Almost every day we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's a bunch of pranksters. More often, it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack the power grid, the banking system, or military information networks. The National Security Agency plays a part in protecting the country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep the country safe. Design new hardware systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what our adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov NSA. Around the world, many crops are protected from pests by organophosphate pesticides. These chemicals attack an important enzyme in animals, acetylcholinesterase, which results in a buildup of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, too much of which prevents muscles from being able to relax. Though not harmful in low doses, like on the fruits and vegetables we eat, organophosphates can be dangerous in high doses, like when farmers apply these pesticides without protective gear. I'm here with Praveen Vamula to talk about a gel he and other researchers created to protect farmers from exposure to these types of pesticides. Hey, Praveen. Hi, Megan. Hello, Dee. Good, good. So what type of health problems does pesticide exposure usually lead to? 
Typically, these pesticides are highly neurotoxic chemicals. When you see a person gets acute toxicity, they start having these shaking, shivering tremors. They no longer can control their neuronal signaling. That subsequently, you know, leads to the respiratory arrest, respiratory dysfunction, muscle movement goes down and they lose their uh, stamina. So because of that, they do have like severe productivity loss. What is the timeline that people start to exhibit this after they've been exposed to this pesticide? When we thought of working on this problem, we used to think that people get exposed over a period of several years and they have to chronically get exposed severely. Then only they start seeing the symptoms. And in fact, that that experience was completely eye-opener for us because the day they spray, like they typically spray from an hour to three hours, depend upon the land area they are spraying. And end of an hour or a couple of hours, they start feeling sick immediately. So in the seasons that they're not applying these pesticides, does that mean they recover or once you're exposed, there's no coming back from that? Once these pesticides enter into the body, they go and deactivate an enzyme called acetylcholinesterase, which plays a pivotal role in all your neuromuscular function. And when they get exposed, it starts inhibiting this enzyme and in an irreversible manner. But over the period of time, this enzyme can regenerate in the body. That's why like if you have that very high dose, like, you know, severe exposure you have, then you have severe acute toxicity. And for example, in the last season, in one district in India, 40 people lost their lives. But if it is sublethal dose, week, two weeks, they recover. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's why like whenever they spray and you have symptoms, severe symptoms for three days from day four onwards, they slowly start getting recover. And in a week or so, they'll completely recover. Whenever they spray again, they have the similar cycle. And these type of pesticides are used globally, right? But it just seems like the application is the problem in India particularly, or is this also in other countries as well? If you see uh, Western countries, most of the times, these are not the manual spray. Whereas in the developing countries, primarily these individual farmers, they go and spray manually. So that's why like, you have much higher exposure in developing countries. Physical barrier creams aren't new to prevent against these things, and they've been tried in the past. What about your gel is different from past iterations? We designed the gel in such a way that it chemically deactivates any pesticide molecules that comes in contact. Then the pesticide no longer has the ability to provide that toxicity. That's how it's a chemically deactivates rather than just physical barrier. I think that's the major reason why it was successful. Right. And how did you test this gel? We really didn't have any valid animal models to systematically study this exposure. So we have developed these new animal models where we can collect the blood at different time points Mm -hmm. and measure the activity of acetylcholinesterase enzyme. So the moment when they get exposed, you can see the completely drop off this enzyme activity. That's a direct biomarker. Mm-hmm. to show that what is the level of exposure. The same doses when you apply in the presence of the gel and then you measure the enzyme activity, we don't see any of such inhibition at all. So which is that clearly suggests that it's a chemically deactivates and prevents them going through the skin. How often would people have to apply the gel for them to be fully protected? We have done like a very interesting experiment to show its uh, catalytic activity. Day one, we applied once a thin layer of this gel on the skin. 
on the same gel almost like four days every day a new amount of pesticide was added but even then like it could completely deactivate and protect 100% survival we observed in these animals that clearly suggests that as long as you have a thin layer it is sufficient to clean them any amount of pesticide it comes into contact you interviewed people that work in these agricultural fields right and what did you learn from their experiences that guided how you were going to take a hold of this project and create a gel all of them are aware that the side effects they are getting is because of the exposure one way to reduce this is having this full suits they can wear with the plastic gowns but unfortunately you know tropical countries like here like where temperature can shoot up to you know 45 to 50 degrees centigrade it's impossible for them to wear on the field and use it they are very cognitive about the cost uh, but if technology comes in a affordable manner they are ready to adopt you wanted to make sure that this gel was cost effective so did you have any problems finding components that were affordable we are cognitive about right from the beginning to keep the costs lower that's why like uh, we took like one of the you know very abundantly available polymer simultaneously we have been working to optimize in a much larger scale synthesis which is essential to when you go for like you know high scale production yeah so what is your timeline right now for hopefully distributing this gel to farmers there are like uh, two more steps needs to be done before it goes to the market right now we are in the process of evaluating their uh, detailed biocompatibility and you know long time exposure effect mm-hmm. and once that is done we'll be submitting uh, for regulatory bodies to get the permission to start the human pilot studies we are expecting at least uh, two, uh, two to two and a half years from now to reach to the market that's the timeline i'm curious if there's any kind of collaboration with governments or cities to help subsidize the cost of this gel to provide it to farmers i think that's absolutely critical for successful distribution of this compound we are in dialogue with some of the agriculture ministers here i think once we make a little more progress with the human data we will definitely like to engage with the government where we can do the co distribute this technology in a subsidized manner to farmers That's great. All right, thank you so much. And thank you. Praveen Vamula is a research investigator at the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine in Bangalore, India. You can find a link to his research at sciencemag.org/podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast@aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast. Or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org/podcasts. To place an ad on the Science podcast, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.
You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.